did a speech the other day and some of the people came and had chat to me after it and said, you know what, we've noticed one of the ladies that used to live in our street seems to be two streets over and living in her car. So they had just noticed, like they hadn't paid attention to the fact that she'd moved out. And, you know, one of the strange questions was, do you think we should knock on the window and say hello? <laughs> and it's a funny thing because people really don't know what to do. I think we have this vision of homeless people as particularly being, you know, drug or alcohol or mental health or something going on. And that that can all be true. But for this cohort, it really isn't. And that isn't the reason they've ended up in their car. And yeah, it's just about having that conversation with somebody, noticing what's around you. And it's that actually paying attention to what's going on there and, and figuring out ways that you can offer your services or just a contact, just to say hello. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. So right now, I would love to welcome Teresa Reed to the next conversation, the Raise 1000 Voices podcast. Teresa is the CEO of the Forgotten Woman Project, which is an incredible project that we're going to unpack during conversation. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, for those of our audience listening along at home or in their car or wherever they are, where exactly are you at the moment? I am in beautiful downtown Wynnum in Brisbane, so I've got a lovely sunny day, and if I stood on the roof, I could see the beach. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all get a bit spoiled living in Queensland. Exactly. So, Teresa, we're going to actually unpack one of the projects that has become very dear to your heart and actually the way that we first crossed paths. Before we do, I'd love to, for the audience, to get to know you a little bit. So, you know, we're going to talk about the Forgotten Woman Project, but how did you actually end up? here now what's kind of like the quick helicopter view of Teresa Reed's life to now well I can tell you that my career never went the way I thought it would go which is probably really good yeah (laughs) I think I think I thought when I was when I was about 12 I was going to grow up and be a basketball star that didn't happen not very Uh (laughs) cool so I kind of I guess my trajectory started with I was always very interested in people so I did psychology was my undergraduate degree and so sort of moving on from there I, I fell into a lot of different jobs in human services and I got a kind of well-rounded view of people in poverty, things, lots of things that are happening to women at the moment, that kind of stuff. So that kind of dragged me into housing, which seems to be one of those things that's the centre of almost everything. Maybe it's the bottom of yeah. the pyramid of, of what we need to, to get right first so people could move beyond that. Yeah, and that led me to probably where I am today. Yeah, amazing. So before we do unpack that project, what is it that you said when you said you got a really well well-rounded view and it kind of took you into housing but what are the things that really landed for you that you think we need to be more aware of generally in that exposure to human services yeah I guess when people think about human services they kind of think about silos like you think about there's employment and then there's you know homelessness and then there's aged care and disability care and I can tell you having actually literally worked across all of them that it's all the same client group it's just along their journey in life and so I'm kind of meeting the same people as we go through and it's if one thing it's taught me is this holistic view of, of how services should work, not in silos yeah. and not looking for target groups, but actually looking how people follow through the lifespan. So, yeah, it's given me this kind of view of a house is one thing, a job's another thing that you need and you keep moving your way up to get those 
to make your quality of life improve. Yeah. yeah, I think that's really important because even, you know, at different times, people for different reasons fall into these demographics, don't they? So I remember they do. I did some work with Anglicare Central Queensland probably 10, 15 years ago now, and that was just when the middle class was starting to become homeless through no fault of their own. And they were like, we've got to change our strategies because once upon a time, the strategy was educate them. But these people are educated and successful and have just a moment in time has changed their trajectory. So I think that holistic view is actually much more relevant, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I think the kind of that person-centered look at at any given point, if you find yourself unemployed, then it changes your access to certain things. And I guess for me, learning across that spectrum is going at any given time, your access to stuff can be changed very dramatically. And for, for some people, particularly for women and, and the stuff that we'll talk about today, there's lots of systemic stuff that actually changes that access for them. So, yeah, if it's me, it's just about where are you in life and where's your access point? Yeah, really good way to look at it, actually, the access points, because I know at different times in my own journey, there's been things that I've needed access to. And it's not until you're actually in that spot that you realize that can be really challenging, you know. And one of the lead ins, I think, to the work that you're doing now and why we met, and I don't think I've ever disclosed this before, but at the age of 17, I found myself on the streets and homeless in Brisbane as pregnant. So because I wouldn't actually terminate the baby, it was something my father simply couldn't cope with. And so I found it really interesting. The thing that's always struck me is that for a number of nights in a row, I rang at four o'clock. So those are the days of public po phones. I rang at four o'clock every afternoon and the shelters simply, simply didn't have room. Now, yeah. I was fortunate that not knowing what else to do, on a Friday night, I went where our new friends would be and I was fortunate to get a couch surfing option. But it's always struck me that, you know, that the shelters and everything set up don't actually have the ability to take most of us in. Is that what you're finding with the work that you're doing now? Absolutely true. And you could build thousands more and it, it wouldn't be enough for full and need that's actually there. And because that need fluctuates depending on what's happening in someone's life, demand is always extremely high. And that's a really common story, and you're probably one of the lucky ones, although your story doesn't sound like you're too lucky there. It, but in terms of having people that you can actually couch surf with, yeah. because once that is blocked off, then you've got even less opportunities and, and very few places have spots. And particularly now, obviously, in the housing crisis, that's like tenfold worse than, yeah. it, than it ever I mean, was. I was. I've always known how blessed I was because I literally ran into someone I'd known through boarding school. He was a couple of years ahead of me. He said, I'm going home for uni break. Here's my keys. Like oh, literally, beautiful. and I've always known how lucky I was, and I've never forgotten the five or six nights before that. So when it comes to the work you now do, because it is about these women on the streets, how did you shift gears into this? Talk us through what shifted gears, then we'll go a bit further into the project. Sure. So I work in community housing, but on the side, I happen to own a barber shop with my partner, and we do haircuts for the homeless. And by we, I mean I sweep up the hair. My partner actually does all the cutting and stuff. Fabulous and barber, by the way, if you're in this region <laughs> in Brisbane. <laughs> so I'd go to a lot of lot of the events that we were doing, and I just started to notice that there was a lot of older women. I could see a lot of older women at the collecting food or turning up for a haircut. But I think what struck me at first was weirdly because they had very long hair, and lots of older women choose to cut their hair short. And it was, and I went, oh, they can't afford a haircut. And then I started to do a bit of digging, and we. We did a fair bit of research around it, and obviously older women are the fastest growing homeless population in Australia. So for me, it was like, there's this cohort that I'm only just visually seeing, but they have not turned up on my books to look for housing. I've not seen them come through what I would call traditional pathways. And so, yeah, when we started looking, we started to go, oh, this group, 
they don't come through a traditional pathway. They'll go off couch surfing, they'll go off living in their cars, but very rarely will they turn up through Centrelink or Department of Housing or any of those things. So it really struck me as this kind of interesting group that didn't access through normal points. So that kind of is what kicked it all off about, well, how do I, how do we help them if they're not going yeah. if we can't access them the way we normally would? I think there's also awareness because having the conversation with you when we met at an event a while ago, then there was another conversation a few weeks, only a few weeks ago with somebody who is involved with one of the breakfast clubs, so Finn Hammers through the breakfast clubs. And they were like, because I'd been speaking to them about doing the project, the initiative, fundraising initiative that you're going to be doing this year. And they were like, yeah, I'm not so sure now that I want to do it because, you know, I've been talking to someone with a breakfast club and there's hardly any women turn up there. Men are really the problem. And I said, but women won't turn up. Yeah. to that van to get breakfast. It's a totally different outlook. And that's something I would not have been aware of without this conversation with Hugh. So can you tell us a little bit more about why women are not showing up to these services and these access points? It's certainly, for us, the particular age group of women don't as well. Yeah. I suspect it's very true for women in general, but that age group is the worst because it would be that I'm asking for help. And they're so used to being completely self-sufficient, you don't ask for help, take care of everyone else, that they don't come and ask for something for themselves. They'd rather hide it. There's there's kind of a shame in there as well that yeah. somehow to ask for food or to turn up to that means you've failed. So rather than do it, they, they kind of suffer in silence. Yeah. So what were the steps and what were the things that you started to discover as you went, how can I help them? So a big part of it was looking at, okay, so it's about stability of yeah, housing. So it's about ensuring that they've got housing. So there's lots of reasons why they become homeless or near, are about to become homeless. And for us, it's about at what points can we change that? So at some points, it's like your rent's just gone up $200 a week. We'll top up your rent. So your rent's going to stay the same. We'll top up in the housing crisis. You stay in your house. Great. So that's a nice, easy outcome. Other outcomes it is we need to purchase a whole property for you. So we'll yeah. be looking at doing that. And others will be, oh, great. There's an opportunity in the marketplace. We'll head lease that on your behalf because you can't turn up with the 80 other people who are trying to get that house and actually get it. But us turning up as a company, we're a good bet to rent to because you absolutely know that you're going to get the rent. So for us, that's a nice, easy thing that we can do. So for us, it's about making sure that they stay where they are. So aging in place in the communities that they're in and connecting. So anyone can find cheaper rent if you move away. But disconnecting yeah. these women from their connections is a huge problem because then you disconnect them from community and they shrink away and we don't see them again. Yeah. And that's one of the things I know just in general conversations, a client of mine who's about 10 years older than me, I'm 50, in my early 50, she is actually looking at doing some cooperative housing because she said, we don't want to move out of region when we stop working and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it's absolutely a problem, a challenge. There's two things that I want to unpack there. Number one is you said we go head lease. So what does that actually yep. mean for those people who don't really understand what that means? Because that sure. blew my mind, the fact that <laughs> an organisation would do that. Yeah. yeah, I forget. Spend too long in the industry, you start using too many acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> we literally, we become, so the forgotten women rents the unit or the house and you're our tenant. So yeah. for the real estate or the owner, we're the tenant. And yeah. so we hold all the responsibility for paying the rent and making sure that everything's taken care of. We're effectively subletting it to you, ensuring that you've got a fair shot at actually getting that because it's very hard for those women, particularly if they're on a pension, to turn up and go, you know, I'd like to have that place when 80 other people are turning up as well. And there's bidding wars, obviously, which there's not allowed to be, but there clearly is yeah. over how much someone will pay. So, yeah, so we, we effectively become the tenant on your behalf. 
Yeah, beautiful. I think the sense of peace that that would give somebody, but also to what I what has struck me different about your organization, and you do this in the mainstream organization as well as Forgotten Women Project, is that you will go in and actually buy or build. Can yes. you unpack that for us? Because that literally makes you, like you're literally a construction company sometimes. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm learning lots about that at the moment too. <laughs> um, so a big part of when, when we first started, I was like, fantastic, we're just going to buy places, this will be great. And and it is great, except it's a slow process. It's a slower process. So we, we have this kind of mix where we do the, the lease thing. But yes, also building. So at the moment, we're just in the development stage actually of building 14 units in Capella. So nice. And that'll be all for the forgotten women. So it'll be all for that age group. We also So we're looking sometimes to build or develop sometimes to just buy. So if it's fit for purpose and it's been there, six pack of units, a full pack of units, fantastic. A two bedroom house, great. So yeah, so we're literally purchasing in the areas that these ladies need. And I prefer the purchase. It just takes a bit longer to get that. But effectively, we take out the mortgage, we pay the mortgage so the bank's happy with us. But again, it's your play. Away you go, yeah. you can have it a lot. Amazing. What is the biggest challenge with that? Because that sounds to me like it's a very big financial commitment as an organization, especially I think you've got thousands of properties under management and that you own across the region. Yeah. How do do. you fund that? So a big part of the forgotten women is to make sure that we're not encumbered by rules or programs or things that don't fit. So I'm very about person-centered. So each person is different. So a program sometimes has too many tight boundaries. Yeah, things like, well, one person should only have one bedroom. I could care less if it was a two-bedroom house. If you're sleeping in your car, I've got you into a two-bedroom house as opposed to one bedroom, that sort of thing. So for us, it's to make sure that we fundraise behind that and that the equity we gain in one property helps us fund the next property. And because we're a company turning up to get a mortgage, we will get the mortgage. If you're 70 and you're turning up to get the mortgage, you won't. No chance so, in hell. No. So for us, it's about making sure that we're, you know, we're just locking them in. We get nice 30-year loans. My yeah. board sometimes goes locking another <laughs> and they, they sweat a little bit. Yeah, but for us, it's just about doing that. It's just that acquisition. Each acquisition helps with the next acquisition, and then we just get this portfolio of properties that, you know, we have this little network that we so can how many women, women. How many women have you actually found firms for in both what you've bought and what you're leasing? Sure. So at the moment, there's 86 women in that age group that we're actually housing. We'll do another 14 as soon as that one's built next year in Kapalaba. So that will be good. Depending on any given day, we're taking probably a referral a week at the moment. Wow. And is yeah. do you think, so a referral a week sounds both high and not. Do you think it's yeah. because people aren't aware this service is available, even if they get into a point where they're looking at? Yeah, it's that's a big part of it. And we're also... Also working with other companies to help triage. So we know these women might reach out in different ways. So we want them to act as the intermediate to go, by the way, you don't even have to ask for help. There's this option. Are you interested in it? And in that, there's sometimes women want to share, do share accommodation, which is great. So we also help arrange that. And so there's a little bit of time between just matching the right people together and making sure that yeah. works. But yeah, I think it's about, one, it's about knowledge and two, it's about them getting to the point of being able to go, yeah, I do need help. Yeah, amazing. And how many, I know there's some scary statistics when they start to break them down now. How many women in, we're in Brisbane, in Southeast Queensland, in Australia, how many people over 55, women over 55 are estimated to be homeless, sleeping rough right now? More than a thousand. Yeah. Yep. So that's a lot. It's your grandma, it's your auntie, it's your mum, and there's a thousand of them at least. And that's statistically hard to get. 
because again, they don't turn up on census night. No one comes knocking on your car window to ask, yeah. were you homeless on census night? And certainly they don't advertise the fact that they're couch surfing. Yeah. One of the things, you know, you've got some incredible stories. Can you share so that we kind of get a deeper understanding of some of the women that have really struck home for you that you've come across who really need help or who have reached out or the ones that really stand out for you? Actually, one of the one of the most recent ones that I've just had, and I've, I've literally just gone to visit her too. And because I'm a Kiwi, it was it was interesting because no one told me it was a Kiwi. And I thought, oh, this will be really interesting. Well, a lady who, who was born in New Zealand. But I went to meet her and she's 71. She's been, she would describe it as sleeping on the couches of her whanau, which means her family. So everywhere yeah. from Maryborough all the way to the bottom of Brisbane, she was just couch surfing around that circle. She'd literally become homeless, but her entire background was helping people and helping her community and teaching young kids, marry like kids that, kids that were struggling and, and often in trouble and stuff like that. She was out there doing that. She was out there providing different services for when people were in palliative care and things like that. So she's been this woman who just gives back to the community and she just disappeared off the radar and due to a breakup basically. And so so no home, no nothing, and then just started staying. And none of the family, none of the family actually knew that wow. she was homeless. They thought she was just visiting. Visiting. So, yeah. So when when we and she she turned up she told her story to it must have been women's legal aid or something like that. She was telling something to them when she was getting a piece of work done and they just happened to mention, you know, there's this place that I might be able to help you. And lo and behold, she turned up and we were like, fantastic. So we've got her in a property now. She's got her own place and she's actually she's here in Wynnum, which is really nice for her. And it was just her stories and her connection to her community and her connection to her, her traditions were all being slowly broken. And this person who had been such a big part of what had happened what a loss it would have been if she had yeah. just disappeared without anybody getting the opportunity. Like a 70-year-old lady who can speak traditional Maori and is prepared to talk to the kids about how that works and her history is just amazing. Yeah, really and it's, it's actually heartbreaking when you think how many of these women just disappear. Yeah, yeah. You know? And for her own family not to know, for her to hide it from her own family was fascinating and she thought she didn't deserve the help even though she'd been helping people all her life. And it's that I don't deserve it or there are people who need it more than I do. That yeah. Kind of theory, so. yeah, there's yeah, a so real minimization. Yeah, there's yeah, a real there minimization, is, yeah. isn't there? And you yeah. did tell the story when we first met about a lady even older than that in her 80s, yeah. which really struck me, that one. Yeah, so she there's a federal government program called NRAS, which is an acronym about a national rental scheme. What it means is that for a decade, her the owner of her unit has been getting a subsidy to keep her there. So her rent's been quite low because the subsidy's there. But after 10 years, the subsidy ends. So when when we first met her, I think she was 82 when we first met her, she had less than two years left before that lease ran out, which means her rent would return to full. The owner of it will either enter that to someone else or sell it. At 82, her strategy for not ending up homeless was to be dead. So that was her strategy. Wow. So... I've got an 82-year-old who should be worried about grandkids and having fun and what what can she get out of life going, well, great, I'm just dead in two years. I don't have to find a new place to live because I won't be able to. So for my mind, that should never happen. No, I just don't have words to that. Yeah, yeah, it should never happen. And it's something we can solve if we don't think about things in silos and we actually look at there are a lot of women exactly like her because if you take her age group, she won't have super. No. She won't have worked for very long at all. She won't have had equal pay even if she did. So she will have absolutely no savings. So unless 
there's an asset base behind her, which there wasn't, which is why she ended up in NRAS. There's no financial security, none at all. And there's no way to pay a current rent on a benefit of any description. A pension would not afford a current rent. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, it's both heartbreaking and mind-blowing. And I guess this is what got my attention because these, as you said, this should never happen. It should never be that somebody would prefer to be dead by the time that rolls around than to be able to find an alternative. And both of those women are old. Is there anything that you can share with us about women in their like late 50s, early 60s that really have surprised you? Because I think that's the one that really brings it home for me as well. Like I can understand some of the, you know, 70s and 80s because I come from a generation of look after yourself and they come from a generation that didn't have backup. And so once you get over the heartbreak and the shock, you can kind of logically see why that happened. But then women in their late 50s are only a few years older than me. Yep, and only a few years older than me as well. For my mind, that cohort is a cohort that, you're right, the older ladies, we go, well, sure, you wouldn't have had super. We forget this cohort don't have super either. In fact, 45% of women over the age of 48 in Australia don't have super. There's dead set, no super sitting there. And those who do don't have very much super because there's a whole cohort coming through now that even though we had equal pay, we didn't have equal pay. As soon as you leave the workforce. So superannuation is fantastic. As soon as you leave the workforce, it isn't a fantastic solution. If you're looking at 50% divorce rate, then here we go. Now that starts to go. So what equity is left? What do you have? And you have a minimal amount of super. Let's say the average person that I would meet in that age bracket probably has about $50,000. If you were going to, even if you could access your super, which you can't at 55 anyway, but even if you were going to try and access it, that 50000 will last you a couple of years in paying rent. That's it. So yeah. it's not going to be a deposit for a house. Walking in at 55 and asking a bank for a loan is not easy either. No. Particularly if you have been out of the workforce for a long time. So there's all these points. So often these women find themselves divorced, having been out, they've been raising kids, or they've just started to come back in, they might work part-time. So there's just this financial deficit that makes it nigh on impossible for them to have stable accommodation. That cohort can't believe it's happening to them. I think that's a big part of it because it's not in their plan or their trajectory. And I think it shocks them sometimes that, oh, literally you are just one divorce, one employment loss away from couch surfing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, when we look at it, why do you think we haven't paid enough attention to this as it's been growing? This is, I think we have this kind of terrible history of not teaching women about finance. And we certainly haven't been teaching women, certainly don't speak up about stupid's great, like I said, because it rewards workers. There's a whole bunch of work being done by women in the household that's not being rewarded in any way in terms of (laughs) when you end up in a divorce or when you end up somewhere, then there's this big financial gap. And I think we have a real lack of financial literacy. We have a lot of women, I hear a lot of stories about 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who are starting their own businesses, but they sign it over to their husbands or they sign the asset attached to the business, like the vehicle to their boyfriend. And when things go south, they lose the asset, they lose the business because it's actually in someone else's name. Simple stuff that we could be teaching them. And I think going forward, that's a strategy not only for the younger generation, but for the 40s and 50s now, it's about understanding what's your financial rights here? What do I need to do and how do I become financially literate to make my future more secure? How can I invest that? So the women that are in their late 50s, early 60s, as you said, feel a sense of shock and disbelief that they're here. Yep. Do you have as much trouble finding them as finding the that next 
level of demographic, that next age bracket? They're slightly easier to find. They might turn up to some ancillary stuff. They still don't turn up to Centrelink or anything like that. There's still a real stigma and a shame about that. But other things, so I often, if I give a talk, I'll bet nine times out of ten, at least two people will come up from the audience and say, I know someone who needs your help. I yeah. know someone or that happened to someone. And that, by the way, that the more, I guess, the more we get the message out there, the more referrals we get like that. Um, yeah. And that's a nice, safe referral pathway for them. Oh, my friend told me about you. It's a nicer way than starting the conversation with them about to be homeless. My friend told me about you. Oh, you know, I've got some issues. I'm sleeping in my car at the moment. It's much easier. So, so we have to actually get you speaking like every single day is what you're saying. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm super happy for everyone. As soon as I do these things, I go fantastic because the network's going to go out and they do it. And yeah. we do get referrals that way. And, and that's the best way because it, for my mind, it takes a community to solve a community problem. And I think, where one spoke, we've got one set of, well, a few things that we're offering, but it needs to be a community reaction to go, you know what, there's every woman in that age bracket is in this problem. So yeah, not just it, that age bracket, there's a whole cohort coming through. They've, they've got this same issue. Yeah, and that's what I think is really surprising. Like, you know, we sit here and, and you know, it happens in corporate, like we talk about, you know, the unconscious bias and all those sorts of things, and it's like, how are we still fighting the same fight we were fighting decades ago? And it sounds to me like the next generation coming through after us are also at the same risk. So we're not actually changing anything. You're doing some formidable work, but we're not changing mechanics, are we? No, and it, it's getting better, but we're still using the same tools to try and yeah. do it. And I, there's an education part for it, and it, it, there has to be where women are given the space and the access to take control of that part of their lives. And I think that becomes I'd rather do prevention yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I would actually do the band-aid at the end, you know. Yeah. There's a whole cohort I've signed myself off to. That there's just a systemic reason that they are where they are. And if a few things to happen, that will happen for them. There's a whole cohort we could try and stop that being the systemic outcome for them. And I think, yeah, we need to put funds and money there. But it's when you talk about government and things like that, they're going to attack what the crisis, which is great, never how to prevent the, that kind of crisis happening. Yeah. So. They're Again, I think it's a cliff. community. Yeah, it's a community thing. It's a school thing. It's an education thing. And it's women teaching other women about finances and that it's okay. It's good. It's good to know that. Yeah. Good to understand absolutely. it. So you get these women coming up to you every time you speak. And I, I've seen it happen, even though I've only seen you speak once, coming up and that's the easier referral pathway. But you like speaking, like going along in our bumbling lives day to day things, what should we be aware of? What kind of can clue us into that someone might be at risk? Look, a really good example I have of this is I did a speech the other day at New Farm. Like, okay. And so the people came and had chat to me after it and said, you know what? We've noticed one of the ladies that used to live in our street seems to be two streets over and living in her car. So they had just noticed, like they hadn't paid attention to the fact that she'd moved out, but on their early morning walks with their dogs, they've noticed that there was a lady sort of sleeping in another street. And they're like, I'm pretty sure that's the neighbour that we used to have. And, you know, one of the strange questions was, do you think we should knock on the window and say hello? <laughs> and it's wow. a funny thing because people really don't know what to do. And I'm thinking, yes, great, because it's a human being. And let's just have a chat about, are you right? Do you need anything? We um, know somebody. And I think it's that giving people permission to have that chat. Um, you know, just because someone's living in their car does not make them scary or anything like that. And, and I think we have this vision of homeless people as particularly being, you know, drug or alcohol or mental health or something going on in that. That can all be true, but for this cohort, it really isn't. And that isn't the reason they've ended up in their car. And yeah, it's just about having that conversation with somebody. 
So I think yeah. that's a part of it, noticing what's around you. I live in a beautiful place uh, in Scarborough and, uh, you know, if you drive off the peninsula in Brisbane, you will drive past a lot of homeless people. Yeah. And it's that actually paying attention to what's going on there and, and figuring out ways that you can offer your services or, you know, just the contact, just to say yeah. hello. Yeah. Is it sometimes just enough to see them and say hello and have a conversation? Yeah, there is. And I think in the housing crisis more and more, you're going to see you're going to see families and all sorts of stuff on that. that was, but there's quite a few tents up and things that I noticed on the way in. It's just acknowledging that it's there. And then as a community, what do we want to do about that? And I'm pretty sure as a community, we all actually want to make that difference. What are your concerns and fear might be too strong a word, but concerns and challenges for what's coming? Because the housing crisis is getting no better. I sat down with someone on the weekend who works for a senator and, you know, we've got 400,000 immigrants. Visas have just been approved, so the pressure is going to continue to go up. So yeah. what is it that drives your concerns for the future? We have a systemic issue with supply. So that's, you can't change how we've got here, I guess. And yeah. my mind, I look back and go, we could talk about it a lot, but to be fair, it's done. And it's, you know, a bit of poor policy along the way from all levels of government to get us where we are. And all sides. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's about, it doesn't really matter because right now we have this massive. So it is about injecting the money for supply. But I also think it's about that thinking differently. So the opportunity to have a granny flat in the back, the opportunity to expand, you know, where you might have your mother come and live in your backyard or things like that. Those opportunities, looking at, oh, I hate saying tiny houses, looking at smaller, more compact options. <laughs> It's a dirty word for council. It's about, I think we have, again, we have these real legacy administrations that find it difficult to adjust and move. They're not agile. And part of it is the community can be agile. And if the community puts enough pressure on it, councils will change them. Who knew that the Premier could just go, you could have a granny flat and that's all legal now. Fantastic. Yeah. So as soon as she did it, it changed everything. Yeah. now there's opportunities and we look at all our property now and go, great, can we get a granny flat in the back of that Perfect. and start looking for it? Yeah. yeah, so I, I think it's about challenging what's got us here because that didn't work and challenging yeah. the build and the structures that we look at and go, what are the future options for us and what structures can we have fit for purpose to ask the people you're designing it for? Yeah. Have, a, have a conversation <laughs> okay. with these ladies. Yeah, have a conversation with them. What are you after? What do you need? You know, how do you age in place? No point building me, you know, five stories if – Stairs are a big component of that. Townhouses yeah. won't work for this cohort when stairs become an issue because you can't age in place. So no. for me, it's multiple things. And repurposing stuff at the moment is something we really have to look at. Yeah, um, absolutely. What can you repurpose that's already there and use it in a different way? Yeah, and that also gets caught up in bureaucracy, doesn't it? Because I know from – and if we go broader, and I'm sure you come across Norman McGilvery and what he's doing and, you know, he's trying to get – empty spaces repurposed and really on a trajectory with that. And I'd be really surprised because I knew him 15 years ago through my career and I'd be really surprised with the bureaucracy that he's facing. And I'm assuming you get the same to repurpose for what you want to do as well. Like that yeah. seems to be we've got these spaces that could be used, but no one can tick a box to say yes. Yeah. And it's very true. And then I call it we're jumping through the hoops. It's frustrating, but part of, I guess, Part of the job of what community housing like providers like us should be doing is helping developers and Marin Pars and everyone else who, who's looking to help with supply is we'll help you jump through the hoops because we're so used to doing it. <laughs> we're quite happy to just go, before you walk away incredibly frustrated, let us help you jump through the hoops. And I think that's part of it. 
finding the system from within itself too, I think, and making those changes going, you know, this is delaying this, this is causing this, is a big part of it. And again, I think community. Community cares about their mum, they care about their aunties, they care about their grandmothers. This is the people that we're hurting by not getting these things through. And I think that's a very powerful message. Yeah, I think actually too as well, I think community, and that's where I was going to go next, you know, you spoke before about community, it comes down to community, it's a community problem we need to be. So what is a community can we do to actually start to turn the tide on this? You know, like there's, there's, there's organisations like yourself who are taking care of the tactical, the logistical, the strategic side of it, but what about as a community? How do we actually shift the tide on this? Yeah, and I think it's about, for me, it's looking at what opportunities do you have? So is there opportunities within, do you have a property that you're renting out? You know, do you have an opportunity for things like that? So we get a lot of people ring and say, oh, I've got this property, it's our holiday house, we never use it. We'd happy to have that in your supply for, you know, the next 12 months or the next two years. So those sort of things is fantastic. It's also about turning up to things and putting pressure on local governments and state governments about, or, you know, vote, you have a good opportunity there to actually make a statement about housing is extremely important. So looking for a policy change, looking for things like that and talking about it because it means someone can then go, gee, you know what, that's actually me. And once you know that, that changes everything because if I can go back to your original story, if it was you but you didn't have that friend to call, if someone knew and we were all talking about it, then maybe the, I become that person to call even though you don't know me yet. Yeah. Yep. And I think yeah. that's what communities do then and then they create this space. Um, and yeah. they go, hey, you know what? That's an Airbnb. Let's use that. Let's convert those short stays now. Let's, you know, let's not block that building going up in our street because we don't want it in our backyard. Because in actual fact, we know who it's going to be for. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Teresa, you've got a fundraising first, really big fundraising initiative, public facing fundraising initiative come up. Can you explain a little <laughs> bit about that for those of us in Central Queensland and Central Southeast Queensland? I went back fifteen years then. <laughs> That's all right. I can do that too. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, glass of your pain. Yeah. So we started it last year and it's going to become our annual event. So I'm very proud that we're doing it again this year. So we call it the Live Like Her Challenge. So what we thought would be a good experience for people and it's, I don't know, I'm an experiential person. I like stories and to experience something gives me a more powerful meaning for it that Live Like Her, we challenge you to come and sleep in your car for one night. I always say to people, it sounds fantastic. It's just like a great thing. It's the most uncomfortable night of your life. You will learn lots of things, particularly at 2 a.m. when you start to really, really start to hit home about people lived like this, not for one night, but for weeks, months sometimes. So yeah, it's a great opportunity. You fundraise as part of it for, for putting your car there. It's a great group of people that get together and every cent that comes from it goes straight back to us doing stuff for the Forgotten Women. I love that so much. And so we're going to be sleeping out in our cars at the Brisbane Airport, I believe. Yes, um, I believe so. Up the top, a uh, nice starry night for us and probably slightly noisy with the planes, but that's actually part of the experience. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm going to be there and I will encourage anyone listening awesome. who is available in southeast Queensland to be there as well. Teresa, thank you so much. We're going to put into the show notes exactly where to find you and everything that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so thank much you. for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. It's brilliant. 
Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.